Good morning. It is communion Sunday. Good, good afternoon. So today we are going to be having communion with some I'm excited for. Um, being that we're here at my house, getting to get together again. It's a blessing. And despite the fact that we're wearing masks, uh, God is with us. God is going to speak to us this morning. And I'm excited to announce that we're going to be going through the book of Acts. Uh, it's a book that I, I love to, to see how Luke documents the works of God. After Jesus came, he lived his life here on earth. He died on the cross, was crucified, and then rose from the grave. And then he set his disciples on fire spiritually with the Holy Spirit. And now they're doing his work. And it's called the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Disciples. And it's the only book in the Bible that's not a closed and finished book, meaning that the Acts are still going on. The work of the Lord is not done. Now, the book of Acts, it's something that when we go through with that, what we're going to learn is a lot of, of church history and, and doctrine, but there's one lesson that I've learned in, in the book of the Acts is that sometimes people will take an example of what one of the apostles or the disciples did and turn it into this uh, doctrine that a model that we're supposed to follow going forward all the time, but it's not the case. We, we take some lessons in that, but we don't always do that. So I want to give you guys just a little bit of a introduction now with the book of Acts. It's known as the Acts of the Apostles. The, the author was Luke. Luke, he is the gospel writer, one of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Luke is actually the author of the book, the Acts. And it's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus. And it was written by Luke. Now, something you guys might not know about Luke is that Luke actually was not one of the 12 disciples. Luke doesn't even show up in scripture till the middle of Acts. But Luke, he would detail through interviews that he would take from, from Mary and from Peter and some of the other disciples, the things that Jesus did. And he was the only gospel writer who was a Gentile. All the other gospel writers were Jewish. Luke is a doctor and a physician. He was a working man and he loved writing in his books, the physical and the miraculous details in the account of Christ and Jesus's church. He wrote this in Rome somewhere between AD 70 and AD 90. And at the time, Christianity was becoming a counterculture to the world. Luke in his gospel and in the book of Acts, he documents the spread of Christianity to the Gentile world under the guiding and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And also the church's gradual drawing away from the old Jewish 
traditions. And then towards the end, he documents the missionary journeys of Paul the Apostle. See, Acts is all about what Jesus continued to do after his resurrection. Acts begins with the disciples who are hanging out with Jesus, who has just come back to life. He's the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus is continuing to teach them about the new covenant and what his death and resurrection meant for them. The book of Acts, it flows through these five major sections, including the first one being Pentecost. There's the feast of Pentecost, which is the, the feast of first fruits. And during the New Testament Pentecost, the spirit came upon Jesus's new covenant family with wind and flames and then symbols of God's presence living in the temple and filled and empowered them to speak in different languages. We're going to get into that in chapter two of the book of Acts. The second major section in the book of Acts is the scattering of the believers. So we have Jesus and his disciples and many started to join Christianity and the church. And then the Jewish leaders at that time began to persecute the believers. And they even murdered Stephen. And as a result, Jesus's followers, they end up fleeing from Jerusalem and they scatter unto the cities and they continue preaching despite the ongoing persecution. And in that section regarding Pentecost, we shortly see Saul, who is then converted into Paul, and his account and his life take place. The third part of Acts begins to focus on the church in Antioch. See, after the disciples and the apostles, they scattered throughout the modern world. The first multi-ethnic international church is formed at Antioch. And Jesus' followers become known at this point as Christians. The fourth section of the book of Acts focuses on the missionary journeys of the apostles. See, the spirit prompts the Antioch church to send missionaries to other lands and invites everyone to follow Jesus as the multi-ethnic family of God. So it, if you ever get a chance, there's to this day, you could follow Paul's footsteps and go and see the world and the missions that he traveled. And in the last section of the book of Acts, Paul preaches in prison. See, Paul is placed under house arrest in Rome, where he teaches and writes letters to the churches, summarizing the purpose of the book of Acts. So we have this movement of what we're going to be looking at as we study the book of Acts. Learning a lot about doctrine, learning a lot about the way that the Holy Spirit moved in the early church's life. I titled the study today, the wonderful work of God. We're going to look at three different things in the first chapter of the book of Acts. The first thing we're going to see is waiting upon God. The second is going to be watching 
Jesus. And then the third section is going to be willing God's will. That's his desire. So let's begin with verse one. Luke writes this. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So Luke is writing now this former account in, the, in verse one, referring to his gospel that he wrote. And he's writing to Theophilus. Now Theophilus, that Greek word, it means friend of God or also lover of God. So Bible scholars are not sure if he's literally writing to someone whose name is Theophilus or if he's kind of speaking in general Oh, uh, to the lovers of God or friends of God. And then Luke referring to the gospel back that, which he wrote, referring to it, Jesus's life, death and resurrection in verse two, he's kind of reminding us of what he formerly wrote in the gospel of Luke. And now with his intro, he wants to write what happened after Jesus came, died, and resurrected. Notice how in verse 3 that Luke wrote that he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. That word infallible, it means that from which something is surely and plainly known, an indutable evidence, a proof. So Luke knew that the resurrection of Jesus was a sure thing. If you guys have uh, ever seen the movie, The Case for Christ, it goes in detail of the Chicago Times, uh, a news writer, news reporter, was a journalist, wanted to find evidence to destroy proof that Jesus could have resurrected from the dead. So Lee Strobel is his name. He begins on this journey of trying to find evidence that Christianity is false, that Jesus never rose from the grave. And spoiler alert, if you watch the movie, he goes and visits all types of scientists and doctors and psychologists and archaeologists. And after all the evidence that he finds, he finds so much more evidence that Jesus Christ did come to this world, die on the cross and was crucified and resurrected that he himself has to agree that there is more evidence showing that Jesus did live and die and resurrect. Uh, I would recommend that, that movie to anyone, the case for Christ. It's a very great movie very informational. But Jesus, 
If you guys did not know this, after he resurrected from the grave, it says that he remained for 40 days with his disciples. Now 40, that's the number of testing. It's also the number of trial and of judgment. And he was speaking during this time to his disciples concerning the kingdom of God. Do you guys know what Jesus' main preaching topic was when he was uh, on his earthly ministry? It was the kingdom of God. Constantly, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is likened unto this. The kingdom of God is like this. And he would give them parables and details of salvation regards to the kingdom of God. And if Jesus preached a lot about the kingdom of God, I know that it's something that we must study ourselves too and be well versed in. Remember he told Nicodemus, he said, if you don't understand when I speak to you of earthly things, how are you going to understand when I speak to you of heavenly things? In verse four, let's continue on. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy spirit. Not many days from now. Ah, see there in verse four, the waiting. So wait, wait on God, wait upon him. Jesus told them, look, do not leave Jerusalem. Here where Jesus had suffered there in the city of Jerusalem was the birth of the gospel. And from here, the word of God would go forth. A gospel church would be birthed right there in, the, in Jerusalem. And a large number would be converted to Christ. So he wanted them to wait here. And he wanted to send them out. But before they were to be sent, he commanded that they be baptized by the Holy Spirit. So they had to wait. You know, waiting upon God and, and abiding in God. At times it's going to require a death to our own self and to our own will, what we want to do. Remember not too long ago, we were studying how David desired to build the temple of God on Wednesday. And God told him, no, David, you're not going to build the temple for me. Your son is, but I'm going to build a house for you. You see, sometimes God wants us to wait, to stop. We get busy about the work of the Lord and we focus more on the work of the Lord rather than on the Lord himself. And sometimes God tells us when we don't want to hear it, no, we can't do that. So how do we respond? We have to die to self. Now he said that you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Baptism, you guys know what baptism is? That's the outward symbol of that inward change. Now, there's the water baptism that John the Baptist practiced. And it was that outward symbol that they were dying to their old flesh, their sinful ways, and they were becoming something new, alive to Christ. 
But notice this. He's saying, you're going to be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this is something that's separate from conversion. And it's also separate from even water baptism. It's separate from salvation. Because right here, the disciples are already with Jesus. They're saved. But now he's promising them that the Holy Spirit is going to baptize them. It says in verse six, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, which the father has put in his own authority. You see the disciples at this point, they still have their national concerns. You see, Israel was occupied by Rome and the Israelites, they desired justice. The land that was promised to them so that they could worship the Lord. But Jesus told them, look, you're not supposed to know when God's going to do this. It doesn't mean he's not going to do it. He's just saying, wait on the Lord. And in due time, he's going to reveal these things. Now in verse eight, it says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Wow, that's something we should pray for to receive that Holy Spirit power to be upon us every day. There are three positions of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. There's three Greek words for each of these positions. It's para, P-A-R-A, it's N-E-N, and it's epi, E-P-I. Now, these three positions, the para means with. It means when the Holy Spirit comes alongside of a believer or even a, a non-believer to convict them of sin, to lead them to Jesus. And then there's the in, and that it happens at conversion. When somebody accepts Jesus Christ into their life, the Holy Spirit comes inside of that person. And then there is the upon experience, the epi. And that's when the Holy Spirit is baptized in you and flows out of you into others. I think I've told some of you guys this account of my life before. I, when I was uh, brand new saved, maybe like two months in, I was given the opportunity to go with the high school group at my church, Calvary Chapel Golden Springs, as a kind of a youth leader. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'm, I want to go. I want to go see what, you know, what the Lord might have for me, what he might speak to me on over there. So I was, I was a very young Christian, two months in with my walk with the Lord. And we went on this trip to Mammoth and it was a beautiful place. And I remember this overwhelming presence of the grace of God in my life. 
where I knew I didn't deserve to be where I was at. I knew I didn't deserve the love and care that God was showing me and that other people were showing me. And I was just opening my arms up to accept this grace and I was humbled by it and it was amazing. And then I remember one night in our condo that we had over there at Mammoth. In the middle of the night, there's this guy who was my roommate. He, uh, he walked in super late in the middle of the night. It was like three in the morning. And he opened the door and he woke me up and I kind of got scared. I was like, oh, wh what's up? And then he saw me and he was like, hey, uh, do you want to uh, have an oil um, put on your head and that you'd be baptized in the Holy Spirit? Would you like to be anointed with oil? And I was just kind of like, yeah, why not? Okay. And then so I get up, it's like three in the morning and I, I go out to the, the living room where everyone was at and there was a few guys there, just a couple guys. And I remember they put oil on my head and they prayed over me. And they were asking that the Holy Spirit would come upon my life and fill me and use me. And I just remember like, whoa, okay, like this is, this is real. And then right after that, one of the high school kids happened to come walking down the stairs too, three in the morning, comes down the, the stairs and he sees us there. And we were like, hey, like, how's it going, dude? And we're like, do you want to get baptized and prayed over, anointed with oil? And he was like, yeah, okay. So we prayed over him. And all of a sudden, another high school kid comes walking down the stairs. We're like, hey, what's up? We're like, do you want to get baptized and prayed over by the Holy Spirit? And they were just like, yeah. And then the next thing, one of the guys told me, he's like, watch, like, they're all going to come down. And all these kids, everyone in our room came down, and we got to pray over all of them. And for me, it was just like, whoa, like, what just happened? Like, how did everybody just wake up right now at three in the morning and just start a prayer movement? And from that point, I remember I was right after that, I, I gave my, my first Bible study and I started trying to do worship and the Lord was noticeably upon my life. And it wasn't me doing the work anymore. And something I, I, I realized is that the Holy Spirit does come upon people. But just like baptism, it's that outward expression of the inward change. So I'm excited that, you know, as believers, we're growing. And I want to look forward to, to continue to pray for one another that we would be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And we need to wait on the Lord. Now, this next portion, I, I titled it Watching Jesus. In verse 9, it says this. Now, when he had spoken these things while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
So we have these two angels. That's what they are. And they watched as Jesus's body, he ascended. And perhaps as they gazed, these angels wanted to convey this message to the disciples saying, look, no longer are you going to look at Jesus with physical eyes, but now by faith because Jesus was leaving. And the message here, as Jesus rose in that same manner, he's going to return. So have faith. You see, Jesus left us the promise of the Holy Spirit as a sign that he would return. His work is not done. And if you look around at the world, we're in need of Jesus's return. My heart, it, it is breaking right now over what, what is happening to our nation in every sense. I've been thinking of all the, the people I've been reading and, and seeing on the news and social media and how people even become devices, divisive over even just their opinions on what's wrong. And I, I've realized I've come to the conclusion that I identify with Christ and that I'm anti-sin. I'm against the, the racism that's going on. I, I'm against the, the violence and the hatred. And I'm pro-God. I'm pro-holy. So we need our Savior every day. It says this in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, the Sabbath day journey. So a Sabbath day's journey, that would be close to about 2000 steps actually, which was a short distance. This was actually the limit that Jewish people were allowed to walk on the Sabbath day. That's why it's called a Sabbath day's journey because it was religiously wrong for them to take on a, a burden that was too heavy because you see the Jewish people, they were bound in legalism to this day. They're still bound in it on Fridays. They don't use the elevators that go up and down because they have to stop at every floor because it's too much work to push a button in the elevator and they can't bear a load or bear burdens on the Sabbath. So thank God for setting us free from legalism. Now in verse 13, it says, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, now that's not Iscariot at the end there. That's a different Judas. But here we have the 11 disciples. Notice not the 12 because Judas at this point had already committed suicide. And these 11 disciples, they end up turning the whole world upside down with the gospel message. Just a few men. 
Remember Jesus told them, look, your ministry is going to be here in Jerusalem. And then next Judea and then Samaria and then to the outer parts of the world. And he gave them this kind of model of, look, take care of what's here first and then go out and then spread out even more and further. And as a ministry, that's what we should desire to do, to grow, to prepare ourselves and then to be sent out. Now in verse 14, it says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You see, they're all right here in one accord, meaning they're in agreement, in one mind, having the heart of their leader who is Jesus. In ministry, it's so important, it's so vital to have the heart of your pastor. If you cannot have the heart of your pastor, I would strongly encourage you to begin to pray and ask God to either change your heart or change your church because you don't want to bring division and discord in a ministry, but they all continued together in prayer. Notice he separates prayer and then supplication. So prayer that's in the general sense when we pray to the Lord but supplication is specifically when you are asking God to meet those needs. See the relationship they had with God. It wasn't just asking for things, just asking for things. No, there was a communication. So they continued together in prayers and also in supplication. Now notice they also continued with, it says the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. You see earlier, the brothers of Jesus, they actually mocked Jesus and they didn't believe that would be James and Jude. Now I, I believe that Jesus here, when it's speaking of his brothers, it's speaking of the children of Mary. Now there's something that the Catholic church teaches on. And that was that Mary was a perpetual virgin throughout her entire life. But if you study the Bible, it, it doesn't give us hints to that being the case at all, that she was a perpetual virgin. In fact, quite the opposite. In Matthew's gospel, chapter one, verses 24 and 25, it says this regarding Mary and Joseph. It says, then Joseph being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her, meaning he didn't have relations with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. You see, it didn't just say that he didn't know her, but it said that he didn't know her until Jesus was born. Now, some people have sought to take, and scholars have sought to take the meaning of when it says Jesus' brothers to be spiritual brothers. However, 
In John chapter two, verse 12, it says, after this, Jesus went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. So it listed right there, his brothers and his disciples. And it differentiates the, the two. There's a category of brothers and then disciples. So if it was just something that was spiritual, then why didn't it include that with his disciples? Now, the Roman Catholic Church has argued against this a lot. And a lot of it has to do with they look at the early church fathers' writings, who a lot of them do teach and they write that Mary was a perpetual virgin. Now, this is the early church fathers, not biblical. This is extra biblical. And so I began to study because I wanted to look at this topic. I was like, wait, well, did she have children or not? And the, the deeper I, I dug, the more I realized that the Bible itself does not say that she was a perpetual virgin. The Bible more leans towards that she had children, but it, it's not something that you can create a dogma out of it, meaning a hard pressed rule. And it's not something that I would start to try to argue with uh, with anyone because you can't really know for sure, for sure. In summary, uh, Jesus, what we do know from the Bible is that he had four brothers and at least two sisters that could either be his younger brothers and sisters or older half brothers and half sisters. Because it's the way Catholics view it is that Joseph from an earlier marriage had these children or that they were his cousins. And that's extra biblical. Now, although no one can be absolutely certain on the matter, the natural sense in which to take the references and that they were his actual younger brothers and sisters. John also tells us that during the ministry of Jesus, that even his brothers didn't believe him in John seven, five later, however, they became active leaders in the church with two of them, James and Jude, writing letters that became part of the New Testament. Now, this would seem to indicate the actual brothers of Jesus, that other children of Joseph and Mary, actually, rather than his stepbrothers. But one cannot be absolutely certain. What is certain, however, is that the scripture does not rule out the possibility that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And it's an interesting study when you really dive into the text. Nonetheless, we see the family of Jesus now is growing. As they watched Jesus ascend into heaven, they were realizing, okay, like this is really going on. This is going to happen. He's going to send his spirit. And so in this last portion, I titled this last section, Willing God's Will, meaning to desire his will. And in verse 15, it says, and in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Judas 
who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained in this ministry a part. So now Peter here, he steps up serving as a role and as a leader in the church. And there was 120 believers at this time. See, notice Peter's state. He stated that the spirit spoke through David. And when I, as I read that, I'm reminded that as David is writing out his Psalms, that this is the inspired word of God. It's God breathed that this Bible that we have here in our hands is literally God's living breath. God breathed his words to us. You see, I used to think that when people would say that the Bible is the inspired word of God, I used to think, okay, that means that, you know, the the disciples, the apostles, as they wrote this, they were uh, influenced greatly, like emotionally moved, inspired of, like kind of like an artistic inspiration. But when you look up the meaning of the word for inspiration, it literally means God breathed. So they're at that point, just the pen and Jesus is the writer. And God, he cannot breathe false, falsehoods. He cannot breathe lies. So what is inspired of the Lord has to be true. Now, Peter quotes in these verses concerning Judas. And then in verse 18, he says, now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and failing headlong, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, a caldama, that is the field of blood. Now, referencing Judas, earlier in Matthew 27, after betraying Jesus, Judas would hang himself. Matthew writes. Now, some people have read this and been like, oh, well, if Matthew wrote that Judas hung himself, but then Luke is writing that he fell and burst open, then there's a contradiction, which is not true at all. Whenever there's a seeming contradiction, look deeper, look at the context. All that's happening is that Luke is telling us more of the account of what happened to Judas. See, Judas in this complete condemnation would hang himself on this tree, but then the rope would snap and he would fall to his death to the floor where his entrails would burst out of him. Now that's quite a graphic way to die. But there was no contradiction in that. So Peter continues to say, for it is written in verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. He writes those from Psalm 29 of 69, 25 and Psalm 109 verse eight. Now was Judas supposed to be replaced? Because that's what Peter's trying to say. Look, now that Peter's gone, 
we have the 12th position that needs to be open. Let's start sending out applications. So was he supposed to re be replaced? Yes, he was. Now in this next portion, what we see Peter do is he begins to use a method from the old covenant to determine God's will. And its consequences are uncertain. Look at verse 21. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Ah, so in these verses, 21 and 22, we have the qualifications of the apostle. You see, they had to be around from the time of John's baptism until the time of Jesus's ascension. They had to see the risen Lord. Now later, Paul, the apostle, he would assert and he would write that he said, look, have I not seen the risen Christ? So this was one of the requirements of being an apostle. Now, if you were to ask, are there apostles today? Do we have apostles today? My answer would be, I don't know. I don't think that the word apostle could be used in the same sense that it was for these guys, because for them, the requirements for the apostleship was to have seen the risen Lord, to have been there from the time of John's baptism to Jesus's ascension. And no one here has done that. I do know that in revelation chapter 21, verse 14, it says this. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations. This is referring to the heavens in the future. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb. So how many apostles did it say? 12 apostles of the lamb. So are any of our names going to be on that wall, that city? Probably not. <laughs> now in verse 23, and they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, Matthias then is selected to be that 12th apostle to take Jesus' place. And that was the last that we ever hear of Matthias. He's selected by the disciples. And then scripturally, we don't hear any more about him. So it might seem that Peter kind of jumped the gun on choosing Matthias. You see, this idea of casting lots to find out who the next apostle would be. Peter took that from the old Testament, from the Urim and the Thummim, when they used to cast these lots to determine the will of God. God ordained this in Exodus chapter 28. You could look that up, but that was for the high priests. And this is the last time we read about this being done in the Bible. Now, why is that? I believe it's because that God desired 
to speak to them now in a new way. And he was gearing them up to be ready now for the Holy Spirit to guide them. See in Hebrews 1, 1, it says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his son. See, Jesus is alive and amazingly powerful and desires to speak to us day by day. And he's now gearing the disciples. He's about to have that Holy Spirit baptism fall upon them. But you see, there was the method. They had to wait upon God. They had to watch Jesus, keep their eyes on Jesus. And then lastly, they had to be willing to do God's will. They had to desire God's will. So may we wait, may we watch, and may we desire to do his will. This afternoon, we are going to have communion. Uh, now, as I um, lead worship, uh, I would invite you guys and encourage you to uh, do some self-reflection and prayer and trust the Lord. Trust the Lord that he can forgive you of of sins that he can heal you. So let's begin and we're going to jump into it.